Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. This is the second of our two episodes with the legendary composer Alan Menken. In the first episode of my conversation with Alan Menken, we talked about the extraordinary collaboration between Alan and Howard Ashman. After Ashman's passing, Alan helped to carry on his legacy with an amazing array of work that are now Disney classics. This is his legacy. And, you know, I, I, I know that good came from it. I know that the associations that people have with people like Howard, with LGBTQ community, and knowing what they brought to the world, it's an invaluable gift that these exist in that context. And at the same time, we were simply, again, architects building a house that others would live in. So you finish Aladdin with lyricist Tim Rice. I'm sure that must have been difficult, but perhaps in a different way, maybe kind of exciting. I was um, a fan of Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, and Tim is a delightful guy. He's the, just the nicest person on earth. So generous and so so sweet, and, and it got his own style of humor. And so the challenge was wedding his style to Howard's style, and he was he was great at that. The one new color. I think came out in A Whole New World. Mm. That was a song that was so Tim Rice. Howard and I had talked about there being a Magic Carpet Ride song, but we thought the song was going to be Proud of Your Boy. And then after Howard's passing, the moment oh, was cut. Yeah. What a surprise on a Disney project. <laughs> and so we set up a time for me to go to London and work with Tim, but I didn't want to show up empty-handed. I remember... Like the day before I was going to get on the plane, I, I want to send Tim three pieces of music along with dummy lyrics so he'd understand kind of how I felt it would function, especially in the rhythms of the collaboration that I had with Howard. And Tim was great about that. And so if you look at a song like, you know, One Jump Ahead, I think you, in many ways, in fact, you'd be hard-pressed to feel the difference stylistically between what Howard would have done and what Tim did. And then there are moments like A Whole New World that are pure Tim. And the miracle is that the wedding of those two, I think, really feels like a complete seamless score. A whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. These now classic animated musicals for the screen then went on to become fairly sizable hits as theatrical experiences in front of live audiences. And I- Huge. And, yes, and I wonder, is this something that you embraced or thought, I don't know, I wrote this for this and now it's got to become something else? The first one was Beauty and the Beast. And when I heard Disney w wanted to go into Broadway finally, because I'd been I'd been pressing them about, they said, no, 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 it's not a good business model for us, whatever that means. <laughs> I'm not a businessman, so I don't understand business models. Creatively, it felt like a natural marriage. When they realized that they could bring the Disney audience to theater, as well as bringing in the theater audience, that they, there was a place for it. But I was terrified, because I had seen... I, I love the parks. I Believe me, I love Disney World, Disneyland. 
but I wouldn't want to see somebody with a foam head walking around on my stage. <laughs> so I was te- a little terrified. And when I saw what Rob Roth and his team actually had envisioned, I was very relieved. It was it was absolutely, you know, Broadway in, in every respect and larger than life and, and beautiful and still when we opened, I remember, we opened to pretty scathing reviews, but, <laughs> you know, it worked. You know, there's Beauty, and there's Lion King, and there's and Aladdin, and, and Little Mermaid, which actually runs all over the world now, um, and Frozen. I will say, in the adaptations, fundamental changes have to be made, because you're going from what is essentially creatively a three-act structure into a two-act structure. So... What is your act one closer? You know, a little bit of reorganization or a lot of reorganization that has to happen while still keeping the basic elements. Mm. So I'm very proud of what we've accomplished in adapting those works for stage. And then, of course, bringing that back from stage to live action film is a whole other set of challenges that can be a little headache producing, but still is kind of an amazing blessing. Let's come back to that in a minute, but I want to stick for a second with the idea of taking something from the screen and shifting it to stage. And I think maybe you and I have talked about this before, but I think that The Hunchback of Notre Dame is a musical masterpiece. I loved the film, and yet the film was not so successful, and yet when translated to the stage in Berlin, became a big hit. I wonder if you can talk about the Hunchback experience. I mean, Hunchback... I, I wrote with Stephen Schwartz. Our first project together was Pocahontas, and then came Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right. For the animated film, we knew it was an exceedingly dark story. In order to help lighten it, we created the characters of these gargoyles that are wisecracking and joking, and, and also, of course, we <laughs> altered the ending. And then... Uh, I think publicity or marketing went a little overboard with join the party as the basic selling point. It was, you know, all the characters of Hunchback had joined the party. I go, okay. <laughs> when, we, when it came to, the, to adapting it for the stage, we were able to return to the you know, Victor Hugo roots of the story. And it took a while finding the inner voice of those gargoyles in Quasimodo's mind they have a certain a loving lightness to them and yet you know a much deeper message and meaning i'm really really proud of what we were able to able to accomplish with the stage show i had hoped it would go to broadway I, but it plays all all around the world and you know very popular oh i'm glad to hear um, that it's it's a deeply meaningful project to me and i'm very proud of it and it it was of all I was winning Oscars for each of the projects. Hunchback was the one where I said, nah. (laughs) Let me ask you one other question that I want to sneak in, I think. And that is that four of your eight Oscars are actually for the dramatic scores that you've written for these musicals. Right. Uh, And of course, you've done others for Disney, like including a score for The Shaggy Dog. Remember that? I do. Is that an entirely different challenge musically, writing the dramatic scores? More so now than it was 
When I was doing Little Mermaid, a lot of the temp music was drawn from the, you know, maybe the accompaniments to some of our songs, or some of it was actually pulled from existing scores. We should probably define temp music. Temp music is when a director takes a, a score from something else or a piece of music from something else and puts it under uh, some footage, and it's an indication of what you might want to have there later. With Little Mermaid, I was allowed to write a score that was very much an homage to early Disney, early Walt. I was doing a lot of what we call Mickey Mousing, a lot of, of literally tracing movements with musical figures. And gradually, I've had to let go of that, and a lot of the scores end up being much more basic texture underneath the scene and then bringing, bringing melody in to go into a song. So I've had to evolve my style of scoring to meet the desires of the director or the studio. When I'm writing a score from scratch, I, I, I want to find what is the world that I, I think this film wants musically to be embracing, and how do I serve the director? In some respects, I think maybe my finest score was the score I lost for for Hunchback, because I was I was able to draw on the liturgy of the church, draw on so many classical influences, and support the songs at the same time. Very ambitious score, and and ironically, probably my least sophisticated score is Little Mermaid. But I mean, you don't I don't worry about awards. Hunchback lost best score to The Full Monty. So talk about, I mean, a, a, what, a, what a contrast. <laughs> oh, boy, I know. I'll have you know that I drank my coffee this morning out of my Hunchback of Notre Dame cup. Well, thank you. <laughs> that, that's a award enough for me, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Enchanted is still a favorite in our house. And this, I think you did again with Stephen Schwartz. And what's, what's fun about Enchanted is that it actually functions in part as a kind of send-up of classic Disney tropes. Totally. This animated ingenue is transported into Times Square, <laughs> into the contemporary world, and it's just the best conceit you can imagine. And so, yes, we were able to, in the earliest part of the score, I'm drawing on, on the earliest Walt, going back to Snow White, those tropes. Then when you get to the modern world, and she's singing a happy working song. But it's basically, as the score progresses, it moves through the history of Disney step by step through the score. I think it's brilliant. And happy working song is a special favorite for us because it's, it's the only Disney number I can think of that spotlights rats, cockroaches, and every nasty thing you can find out of New York Street. <laughs> yeah, Stephen's <laughs> lyrics are so brilliant. And we're doing the sequel to Enchanted now. And again, I'm being reminded of what a astounding lyricist as well as composer Stephen Schwartz is. And the sequel is called Disenchanted. <laughs> Which I also love. With a little -dum -dum -dum, while we're emptying the vacuum it's such fun to hum a happy working song a happy working song So Tangled comes along and it's the Rapunzel story uh, in 2010 and this time you're working with lyricist Glenn Slater. Yeah, yeah. Rapunzel had, apparently had been 
in Walt's wish list going all the way back into the 30s. And again, I, I suppose, how does this sing? Because much of the story is simply Mother Gothel and Rapunzel. Again, it's like a two-hander. And we had to invent the characters in order to really make that story live. One being Flynn Rider, this thief and ne'er-do-well who ends up taking Rapunzel on her journey from the um, tower. And then the other part is finding the vocabulary. And in terms of the vocabulary, I kept thinking about Joni Mitchell. I don't maybe it was the long blonde hair and, and the desire for freedom, but I kept thinking about wake up, it's a Chelsea morning and the first. Now I'm ignoring what what Joni probably meant in terms of the meaning of Chelsea Morning, which is a lot of real-world angst as well as joy in there. But for me it was the simplicity of that folk rock medium and what it meant to our generation and also to the idea of freedom and it just became the starting point stylistically. I want to jump slightly ahead to 2015 and Gallivant. This was a weekly musical for television, and it was a kind of a comedy, it was a fantasy, it was a period piece. And I'd love for you to talk about why you wanted to do it and how fast the work process had to be because it was a musical for television every week. So it's, it's good that you followed Tangled with this because the, the, the book writer on Tangled, we would sit with Dan Fogelman in these story meetings, and I, God, I love this guy. He was so good. So smart, so good, so funny. And of course, Dan Fogelman has now become a legend in our business. And Dan, after Tangled, he he asked Glenn and me to work on Neighbors, a sitcom he had developed. And we wrote a sort of a Broadway episode. And then he said, we, we have to do more of this. He said, okay, I have an idea. Basically, it's a swashbuckling hero gone to seed. <laughs> um, and so Glenn and I jumped into it, and it was like creative boot camp. We churned out 62 song moments over 18 episodes. Wow. It's insane. Each of these song moments were little comedic gems. And that was hard. <laughs> it was hard with each episode finding what do we do that we haven't done before. And uh, there's a devoted audience that loves Gallivant. Oh, yes. And to it's God a total certified cult classic already. It is. I have had for a long time a desire to bring some of those songs actually to something on the stage. You know, after the experience of Newsies, I know that, frankly, nothing ever goes away completely. You just let it sit and marinate, and next thing you know, it's back. Yeah, I think it maybe is, it's good to remind our listeners that Newsies was, uh, forgive me, a failure in terms of its film reception, and then it goes on to become a huge hit and win you the Tony as a Broadway show. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, Razzie for worst, worst to Tony for best. We made 2.6 million at the box office. It was on VHS, and then it was on cable. You know, it just got adopted. People just loved it. And I would go to my kid's camp or something, and they'd be doing Newsies. They made up their own version of Newsies. And then I'd, go, I'd walk into a mall, and there was a flash mob doing Seize the Day. And next thing you know, it's on Broadway. 
Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Alan Menken's score and songs for the animated and live-action movies for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, plus favorites including Pocahontas, Hercules, Enchanted, Tangled, and many more. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Gotta keep one jump ahead of the bread line, one swing ahead of the sword. I steal only what I can't afford. We started to talk a little bit earlier about live action versions of these now classic animated musicals. And I want to ask you about the status of The Little Mermaid, which I believe is being directed by Rob Marshall and has new songs by you and Hamilton's Lin-Manuel Miranda. So where Correct. is where is that stand now? They are filming. They are. They're filming. Yeah, we finished most of the recording of the songs. We did that just as the pandemic was hitting. I'm sure there'll be more recording. With Lynn, I would hear about Lynn Manuel Miranda when he was a <laughs> little kid because my niece went to the Hunter School and she was a classmate of Lynn's. And um, my sister Faye would say, oh, "This is this boy, Lynn." He loves Little Mermaid so much. Could you sign this poster? You know, he's a Lynn that we know. The enthusiasm and rabid uh, appetite for for wanting to absorb all of what something has to offer was in him as a little kid. When his In the Heights opened, I went backstage and I met him actually for the first time because I had signed posters to him. I remember signing a poster to Lynn that said, to Lynn, please stop kissing Jenny's feet. <laughs> Alan Menken. I, I kid you not. And we laugh about that. And Lynn and I wrote four or five new songs. The first, Lynn was struggling to do Alan Menken-style songs. And he felt like walking in Howard Ashman's shoes was a daunting prospect. Then we wrote some songs that were in Lynn's wheelhouse. And for me... Walking in Lynn Manuel Miranda's shoes was a daunting prospect, <laughs> but we had we had a blast. I can't wait for people to hear the, the songs. You know, all of these adaptations—it's a strange process. In that, in a way, each of the live-action film musicals leapfrog over what was done on stage. They don't actually pull anything. It's more like spokes on a wheel than they are a linear process. And most of the original songs from Mermaid, uh, with some exceptions, maybe actually one, are in in the live action movie. And then with new songs, same thing as when I you know worked with Benj Pasek and Justin Paul on Aladdin, writing new songs to a score that basically pulled on the songs from the original movie with Beauty and the Beast. Same thing. Oh, under the sea, under the sea. Nobody beat us, fires, and eat us in fricassee. What's it like knowing that children all around the world and now grown-ups can sing your songs and know your melodies? It's a blessing. When I sit 
and I write these songs and I feel like the ideas or the creativity in a way come through me. They come from me, but very much through me. I guess it's, yes, it's partly mine, but it's mostly, I'm simply feel like I'm passing on to them what came through me. That's one part of the dynamic. The other part of the dynamic is, in a way, these songs are my children. They're born, and they grow up, and then they go out to the world. And so I'm proud of my children, and they, in a way, have their own lives that I feel attached to, but I don't have that sense of ownership quite in the same way. You've been performing in public kind of a lot lately. I've seen a number of instances of you at the piano performing your songs, sometimes to fairly sizable audiences. Is this something that you enjoy? Something that sort of brings out the performer in you? I do. I love it. But one reason I love it is it's the one context I have to bring my career into focus. People refer to Disney music or they refer to a genre of music. And I'm within that. So I like having, at least for an evening, it's Alan Menken's world. I play and I talk and I, and I have these screens that show images from the shows or sometimes videos. And I love doing it. I really do. It's, um, <laughs> it takes a lot of stamina. But I love sharing the stories with audiences and the, the moments with audiences. And I feel very blessed that I've reached the point in my life where it can be such an enjoyable experience. I'm sure when I was younger, it would have been you know, slight, maybe slightly terrifying. I had always wanted to be a recording artist. That was my initial ambition was I wanted to be Billy Joel and Elton John and Jackson Brown. But I, Janice and I got married young. I didn't want to tour. I didn't want to live on stage. And so writing, having my songs come through the voice of characters really became my persona. So this created a way for me to be in front of an audience, share me and those characters and those stories and the stories behind the songs with an audience. And I do have to say, Richard was a huge collaborator in creating that evening, so I'm very grateful for his help. You know, we're speaking about Richard Kraft. Richard Kraft, yeah. Your manager, yeah, yeah. What are you working on now that we can expect from you in the months and maybe years to come? Just before the pandemic, we had the stage musical of Hercules, which actually performed in Central Park at the Delacorte Theater. That is on the way. It's a stage two-act big musical that will, as soon as we can be getting new productions on their feet, that is going to happen. Um, the sequel to Enchanted, Disenchanted, is going into production. And a um, new animated project called Spellbound at John Lasseter's new company, writing that in collaboration with Glenn Slater. A Beauty and the Beast prequel for Disney Plus. Backstory of Gaston and LeFou. Wow. Oh, a, a musical of, of Night at the Museum. Wow. I've been working on a new original musical with my Newsy team, Harvey Firestein and Jack Feldman. It's actually based on a story that I had heard on, on a... Uh, podcast, which I was fascinated by, true story. Oh, God, there's a ton of, ton of things. Uh, I'm glad to know that, you know, you're not sitting around wait, <laughs> counting your residuals. <laughs> I don't, 
I don't know how to do that. I, I would be so bored, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I've got a dream, he's got a dream, I've got a dream, he's got a dream. And I know one day romance will reign supreme. When you look back on your nearly 35 years with Disney, what stands out to you and why? Oh, wow. When I first came to Disney, there was within the company this sense of from the top of the company, that rigidal, you know, um, murderer's row of talents who were running the studio. <laughs> it's got to be a better word than that. Uh, A-list. A-list. Of, okay. All the way down to the person in the parks who sweeps up the popcorn at the end of the day. A sense of connection and ownership, so to speak, of this tradition. And deep, deep love of what it means in their lives and what it means in our culture and what it means in the world. You know, I pray that that remains a part of what Disney is. I, I think it's because of, of holding on to an understanding and cherishing those roots. And that's what I've always felt about Disney Company. You know, I, and I've been very, very blessed to have the relationship that I've had with Disney. And they've allowed me to have the sense of, I, I will use this word creatively, not legally, ownership of what I create. And so I'm always invited back to be the one uh, giving new life to that. And, and that means an immense amount to me. So, you know, I'd rather my life not be entirely defined by my relationship with Disney. And at the same time, it's just such an incredible blessing. I, I, um, I love it. Well, we love everything that you do, Alan, and I can't not wait for uh, all of these other projects to come to fruition. Can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Alan Menken. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you could rate it, because that really helps others find the series. Check out the animated and live-action movies for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Plus favorites including Pocahontas, Hercules, Enchanted, Tangled, and many more on Disney+. And listen to the soundtracks wherever music is enjoyed.